everybody, Alice here with the final episode of Poetry Says for 2020. Very, very happy to share with you today an interview with Fiona Wright, who I have been hoping to talk to for many years. Fiona is the author of books including Small Acts of Disappearance, which was shortlisted for the Stella Prize and the New South Wales Premier's Literary Awards, Poetry Collections Knuckled and Domestic Interior, and her latest, The World Was Whole, which is a beautiful collection of essays and other pieces which act a bit more like prose poems. It's really, really stunning. One of my favorite things I've read this year and really great company when I didn't have much going on earlier in the year. It was such a pleasure to talk to Fiona. As I said, she's been on my list for a long, long time. Just really fun to get to actually talk to this person who I feel like I've been in conversation with for years just through their work. Fiona's work is, I want to say personal, but that's not precisely accurate. And we'll get into why that is throughout the interview. We talk about what it is to write about the self and whether that's actually a brave thing and how a poetic structure that she uses in her essays actually allows her to maybe say more than she would if she was writing in a more traditional narrative way. And we touch on a whole bunch of other themes as well, including health, what it's like to work with Giramondo. We talk about the community of poets she has around her up in Sydney. And yeah, why it's important to include a bit of humor alongside everything else when we are digging into these more difficult subjects. So I really hope you enjoy this last interview for the year. If you've been enjoying Poetry Says this year, let somebody else know, someone else who likes poetry or writing, Australian writers. I would love that. And thanks to everyone who has been listening throughout 2020. It's been a real anchor for me to keep making these episodes for you. So I really hope you enjoy this interview with Fiona Wright. I'm talking to an old friend really because I have been reading your writing for a long long time it's one of those strange things I think I have that same relationship with some podcasters as well where I've just yeah. imbibed so much of their voice and their thinking that I'm like oh, I know that person oh there's a term for it in podcasting it's um what is it oh parasocial relationships um yep. <laughs> yeah yeah and, and, and it came from it came from radio too because there's this sort of sense of intimacy and I guess partly, I guess it must have partly been because of radio being that sort of first mass broadcast media that, that people kind of felt like they had these really intimate relationships with radio hosts um, in a way that there wasn't really a precedent for before. And they've been talking about it again with podcasts, because I, which I think has something to do with the way that you like carry these voices around with you as you, you know, do your washing or you know, walk in the park or, or whatever, you know, and it's just you and them. Yeah, I really want to get into that that question of, like, intimacy and how much we, we let audiences in, but I won't go there just yet. <laughs> I want to ask about just really basic question. Um, what has mm. reading and writing looked like for you this year? Because for mm. me it has looked pretty sparse, I will admit that to you now. 
yeah, it's a, it's a, it's been an interesting year, you know. Um, <laughs> interesting year. I keep thinking of that curse. May you live in interesting times. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I had a I had a sort of very like positive experience of it, which I feel a bit guilty about because um, I had a I had a friend who um, is an Australian who until recently was working in the States and, you know, is back home now. And the way she phrased it, kind of talking to her friends, her colleagues in New York was like, it, it feels like being the person who got good news at a funeral, um, <laughs> which I just loved. Um, but I was sort of, you know, I had been working a lot and teaching a lot and doing all of the other a lot things that you do on the side. And I had been doing a lot of research, I think, um, and kind of broad thinking about the next book that I'm working on. And I sort of knew what the ideas were and um, kind of had a really vague shape for it. And one of the wonderful things that happened that I felt like I got just a little bit more space when when the restrictions were in at least and of course I'm in Sydney so we had them for a shorter and less frightening time than you guys you know but I wasn't because I wasn't um traveling as much for work and and I wasn't socializing which I hadn't realized was such a drain on me until it was just lifted um I felt like I had more time and and more space and it really like helped me to nut out exactly what it was that I was working on and the shape of what it might be. And, you know, which is my favorite part. My favorite part of any book is when you start to figure out what it is and it's all potential and nothing's gone wrong yet. Um, <laughs> like that's all, all of the tricky bits are in the future and all you've got is the excitement. But, but what I need, you know, I hadn't been able to do that for all of last year. And it was just because I didn't have the the space in my brain. And and even though everybody else seems to have been talking a lot about feeling overwhelmed and, you know, fragmented and all of those sorts of things, I really felt the opposite. But then again, I'm a strange person. So, <laughs> <laughs> See, yeah, right. Are you at a point where you are ready to talk about what that project is turning into or is it still kind of under wraps? Yeah, no, I think so. Like six months ago I probably wouldn't have been able to, you know, it's right. sort of been the the wonderful thing but and and I think one of the reasons why this year has been useful for it is that it's a book about medicine and medical science and medical knowledge and the ways in which that knowledge has all of these or, or that system of thinking has all of these assumptions kind of sitting underneath it that we're trained not to look at and of course like sexism is a like medical sexism is a a big one of those and there's kind of you know racism there as well and ableism and but also that you know this idea that science is an unfolding process and and a series of experiments and false starts and what we consider knowledge and truth changes as as we learn more but we kind of or at least I had this vision of medical science as being absolute and faultless and fixed until I got sick and you know the system couldn't work with me um or I didn't I didn't fit within that system and it all kind of fell apart so I think it's still kind of thinking 
thinking through my experiences, but from a more sort of systemic, um, bigger picture. And I want to talk to a lot of other people as well to kind of broaden out the perspectives and, and try and get it to be a more worldly book. But then that suddenly becomes a really interesting thing to be thinking about and writing about in the middle of a pandemic where we're faced with, you know, emerging science, like things that science doesn't know about a novel disease and, and watching, you know, watching the learning happen, but also things like public health and, and what, what the whole concept of public health means and what pandemics have meant in the past. And one of the things that's been really fascinating to me is that I think a lot of the generally healthy people in my life were so thoroughly shocked <laughs> and rattled by having to think about their bodily vulnerability and their health on a sort of day-to-day basis and to not be able to do things on account of their health, which is the way I've been living for pretty much all my adult life. So it's, it's sort of a, a really strange moment for disabled people, I think. Yeah. So that was... Yeah, that was a bit of a rant, but that's what no, no, that's what they're working on. <laughs> I'm super excited to read that. Wow, that sounds incredible. I mean, yeah. it sort of is perfect, isn't it? In a way, getting to watch the the unfolding, as you say, of medical knowledge in real time, mm-hmm. and everybody having to reconsider their position as like as a body, a medicalized body. Everyone's just walking around yeah. as that primarily now. Yeah, yeah exactly, and <laughs> and. And being conscious of their bodies in a way that I think a lot of healthy people are just not used to. It's one of the kind of great privileges of, of being well is that you get to forget that your body exists a lot of absolutely. the time. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Wow, that's really I imagine. exciting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's I think that's really true. Like I, I went for a run um day before yesterday, and at one point I just um I tripped over a rock and fell and I had that moment where I was like, oh, I've broken something. Like, you know, this is bad. <laughs> and I was so grateful when, you know, I've got a huge bruise, but I was able to get up and keep going. And, but it's only in those moments when you are an able-bodied person that you kind of get this jolt of like, hey, you're not actually invincible. Like it would it would be good if you got up every day and were like, so glad I can you know, I'm upwardly mobile. I can move from room to room without thinking. <laughs> like all this stuff is actually miraculous. Have you come across a book by Anne Boyer called The Undying? Yes. Yeah. Cool. I mean, okay. I think I, I thought that was an incredible book. And, yeah, um, me too. Yeah, both be- because it, um, I think you could really see that she was a poet. Yeah. 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 Um, which, which I love, you know, and I love when poets write prose. Um, not that I've got any particular bias or anything, um, <laughs> but I think there's a particular um, attentiveness to language and to structure that you don't necessarily see in people who are trained as prose writers first and just the kind of wildness of it. And, and the other thing that I really liked was that it's it's a really angry book in a lot she's of ways. She's so angry. I was just about to say she's full of rage, yeah. Mm-hmm. And and I think that's really important because it took me a really long time to get angry. It, you know, it, 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 it took me about 15 years to realise that some of the things that had happened to me were atrocious, but in part because of that kind of idea that 
you know, the doctors know what they're doing and they're the experts and you do what they say and what they tell you is true and real and science. Um, you know, I, I hadn't sort of stopped to go, actually, that 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 was unacceptable and, you know, that I that sh- that should not have happened, basically. But I think, I, I, and I wonder if it's if it's gendered, if it has to do with, you know, being taught to be compliant to and, and being taught to like not get angry. Um, I think women's anger is a really interesting thing. So it, it felt like a um, it, it felt like a really important and political thing for that book to be as white hot with rage as it is. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And you mentioned the structure as well. And I feel like even structurally the way she moves back and forth in time and in and out of subjects, there's something in that too, like the resisting of the the expected like linearity Mm -mm -mm. of this is what it was like when I got cancer. I, I used to have a job where I had the really great privilege to interview people who'd gone through cancer treatment and their families. And in talking with them, I realized that they had all come up with a narrative. And this is something that, that your work really um, brought home to me. Everyone comes up with a narrative of how they got sick and how they got well and how they got through it. Yeah. Um, but it's not, and the undying just exposes how unlike that it is, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think, and I think that's really pernicious. Like I think that is a harmful thing to, to have all these stories circulating about beating illness and and winning battles um you know because of that implication that that if you're not if that doesn't happen for you you know if the odds are not in your favor which in my case they really aren't um and never were you know the implication is that you lost the battle and you didn't fight hard enough or you failed or were defeated or you know all of all of these um strangely punitive explanations for something that has a lot to do with chance and, and a lot to do with forces that we just don't understand yet and, and maybe never will. Yeah. But that, that's why a book like, well, all of your writing, but I'm thinking about the world was whole at this moment, like the way that it, yeah, it just kind of like strips things back to the, to, the, to the bones, like to the interior of the house. And it's like this is how this, this expectation is set up, you know. Mm. This is why we... Like I'm thinking about um, the essay when you go to Iceland and you talk about um, transcendent and imminent time, Mm-mm-mm. which I spent like a week trying to explain to all my friends and they're like, mm. <laughs> it's It's one of those ideas, right? When I read it, I was just like, oh, <laughs> this. That's what it is. Do you maybe want to, if people haven't read the book, do you maybe want to quickly summarise it? Yeah. So um, I came across the idea in... Um, it's a, it's a feminist uh, it's a feminist writer it's a writerly feminist idea that's what I'm going for um and gosh I've forgotten I've forgotten the name of the theorist who had written about it where I came across it but her book was called Throwing Like a Girl um which is a, which is a great title but in any case she was drawing on Simone de Beauvoir um before her who's who I think kind of originally coined the phrase and and the idea is that there's sort of two scales or, or two kinds of time in which we live our lives and that's transcendent time and imminent time and transcendent time 
is kind of that heightened emotional narrative time of, of kind of big events that happen to us that we make the stories of our lives out of. So things like, you know, births and falling in love and, um, you know, travel is supposed to sit under there as well. And I think a lot of a lot of memories that you have of times like that, 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 that time was moving differently in a way that it happened really quickly or it happened really slowly or you're a hyper alert or all of these sorts of things. But um, but that's the exception. That doesn't happen all that often. It's it's transcendent because it's rare. And the argument is that most of our lives are actually lived in imminent time, which is the sort of daily, repetitious, habitual routine, calm, <laughs> homely, um, gentle, you know, day-to-day-ness in which we kind of do most of the stuff that we do because if, you know, it's the gap between the narrative events, as it were. And I think the feminist writers were kind of arguing that this, that it's important to pay attention to imminent time because it's, it has a lot to do with the home and domestic space and, and therefore um, kind of, you know, gendered labour and gendered spaces, which I think, you know, was particularly true at the time. And I, and I do think there's a kind of gendered thing that remains there, but maybe not to the same extent. But what was interesting to it about it to me was I think a lot of what I, when I started writing The World Was Whole, I really wanted it to be a book about the ordinary and the everyday because I don't think we pay enough attention to them and because one of the things that happens to you when you're chronically ill or disabled is that a lot of those experiences that we expect to put in transcendent time, like travel, you know, aren't available to you in the way that you are brought up to expect you, you can't do things that are wild or brave or adventurous as the narratives go a lot more of your life is spent in that kind of ordinary everyday space and and I wanted to find a way to value it um, and it's also been a been a kind of you know rituals and routines have always been really important to me as, as anchors in a way which I didn't think much of you know, I thought it was just my personality. And then this year I found out I was autistic and I was like, oh, well, that makes a lot of sense then. Um, right. <laughs> so then there's a part of me that's like, oh, in that book I was just trying to understand something that is autism. Um, <laughs> wow. Whoops. Yeah, yeah. I, I couldn't have related more to, to those ideas. I mean, it's funny, like I've always watched my dad who has – a routine that my my mum they don't live together but she she watches from afar from the other side of Canberra and is just mystified by the fact that he gets up he has this he eats the same thing goes to Mm. the shopping center comes home has lunch you know it's the same thing every day but I I loved the discovering the word imminent time from your essay because it helped me to understand what my dad is doing like he's an academic he's thinking and it yeah, looks like he's yeah. living a boring, like scarily boring life, but he's actually just he needs it to be like that so that he can think. Yeah, it's a sort of it's a sort of stability that lets you do, you know, whatever else it is that mm. that you want to do. It, it you know that your brain isn't spending all that energy making decisions and and surviving. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it so it frees it up for other sorts of work. Yeah. Um, and and that's why we develop habits. Um, it's it's a cognitive process by by which our our brain kind of moves particular tasks around 
they, they sort of different processing areas are involved in routine tasks because we do do them almost unconsciously. And that is in order to free up the conscious brain, you know, and, and, and that's how we think and play and it allows us to do interesting things. But I kind of, yeah, I was sort of, I felt like the narratives about the kind of life I was leading were saying that, that it's boring and I find it like comforting and, and joyful it just in a quiet way and I wanted to find a way to, to honour that sort of a life yeah. too. Yeah. Mm. You mentioned play and mm. I feel like I feel like we could spend an hour just talking about that one idea but something I was thinking as I was going over your writing and then the reviews of your writing was there is a pretty strong emphasis on the fact that your writing encompasses difficulty and you know the these these tough themes do you feel like sometimes people are just missing this huge area which is that you're very funny and that you're thank you (laughs) are people are you does that annoy you no I'm like can you can you write that down so I can like (laughs) show it to my girlfriend (laughs) because I think I'm hilarious yes I Um, agree I agree Um, you know, I, I think I I've been quite I, I think it does come through in in a lot of the reviews and in the sort of it's not the first thing people think of, of course, because right, right. Mm-hmm. yeah, because the kind of thematic stuff goes there first. Um, yes, I'm hilarious. Alice said so. <laughs> Sweet. Yeah. Um, but you know, I've always I think I think when I was writing Small Acts in particular, it was a very conscious choice because I was aware of how heavy that book was and how grim it could be at times. You know, I feel like I had this this kind of not quite conscious understanding that you've got to kind of throw your eater a bone every now and again, so to speak, um, and just, you know, just give them a little a little bit of relief or you're just like beating them over the head with, you know, trauma, 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 you know, but I also, I also think, I mean, I, I think it's in my poetry too, that I can't, I, I always say to my writing students that, you know, that we talk a lot about voice, um, especially when you're teaching writing. And it's such a weird concept because I don't think it's a thing that you, you choose in the same way that I don't think you get to choose what sort of writer you are and I don't really think you get to choose your subject matter either. Um, but you really don't choose your voice. It's something that you kind of, you know, the task is figuring out what it is and discovering it and experimenting and all of that sort of stuff, you know, but so much of who you are inevitably comes through in the way that you speak and and therefore in the way that you write. I'm not sure if that answers the question at all, but I think I just you know. wanted to to raise the issue because it felt you. important to me to sort of like <laughs> say that, yeah, yeah. And I think a lot of a lot of the times it's sort of sarcasm or or sort of wryness or kind of like isn't this absurd? This thing that's happening. Well, it's kind of like um, Anne Boyer's rage. Like it needs to be the the exposing mm-hmm. the humidity of some of these experiences is really important. I'm I'm conscious that I'm not. Like it's a poetry podcast. I'm not asking you poetry questions. <laughs> the reason for that is that I don't really feel a huge amount of d- 
difference between your prose and your poetry necessarily. Mm. I think that's something you said Thank in you. another interview that you don't you don't worry too much about that distinction either. No, no, and and I think one of the you know I I sort of I say all the time that I came to essays accidentally because it's true. Um, <laughs> I you know I'd, I'd had these experiences and I was trying to make sense of them and and you know understand this sort of new version of myself that I was supposedly being presented with and you know I, I didn't I didn't know how to write about my illness because it doesn't fit to any kind of narrative structure you know which I think ties into what you were saying about the cancer patients it's you you there are narratives out there but none of them seem to work um because the process was so mystifying and it changed all the time and there was no clear sense of beginning or ending or progression really um at certain points so the thing that the thing that appealed to me initially about essays was this idea that it doesn't need a narrative it's it's just about that through line of thought more than a narrative arc it's a thinking arc but the more that I started playing with them, the more I was like, oh, these things are structured by, by resonance or by repetition um, or by, you know, juxtaposition and collage or by metaphor or image. You know, they're structured by poetic devices rather than by narrative devices. And, the, I, and I feel like the language is more important too. I don't know if that's, I don't know if that's something that I can back up, but it's the sort of gut feeling I have about it. Mm. <laughs> You know, so so I do think of of essays in particular of having more to do with poetry than they do with prose. And in the world was whole in particular, you know, that book alternates between the sort of more traditional essays and those fragmentary essays, which I which I started writing as as part of a way to kind of come to terms with this question of the everyday and the ordinary and how you capture that in writing. But I feel like they're prose poems. <laughs> yeah. yeah. They're really just a whole bunch of prose poems shoved yeah. together and, and I feel a bit cheeky about that. But um, <laughs> well, that's okay, ever, right? Were you ever going to, was Ivor Indic ever going to say, hey, no, you can't, um, please make no. these more straight, you know, like he wasn't going to be bothered. No, not, not, at, not at Girimondo. I mean, the wonderful thing about Girimondo as a publisher is that um, <laughs> I was going to say they let you do whatever you want, which is not true. Um, they they're much more open to you know experimentation and formal difficulty and um, strangeness. I mean, strangeness in their books is one of the things I think they're really proud of. You, you know, so I didn't I didn't get any pushback, and I didn't expect to get any pushback on that at all. It's funny, I, I sort of. I think it's a slightly different scene now, but but Small Axe was um, published in 2014, I think, or 2015. And there weren't many kind of single author essay collections out there and certainly not by like a debut prose writer. Um, and it's a weird book. You know, it's, it's kind of fragmentary and non-linear and it's got all those like bits of writing about books in it. Yeah, I don't think any other publisher in the country would have touched it um, <laughs> or, or would have been like, oh, yeah, like we, we like this and we like the writing, but, you know, can you make it more like a memoir? Um, yeah, yeah. Mm. 
you know, so so I feel very lucky to have always been involved in a publisher with a publisher like that that are so um, that embraces risk rather than being nervous about it. Yeah, and and I'm grateful too that that it, the book <laughs> is able to come through. I I do want to ask this this question about what's what's revealed, what's kept in, and what's left out. Mm because I feel like it connects a little bit to this idea of um, the poetic structure or the, the essays having a poetic kind of core, Mm-mm-mm. because I feel like maybe that allows that structure allows you to say both more and less. Yeah, that's a really interesting idea. You know, you don't need to, there's a certain liberty in it because you, you don't need to make sense of things. Right. Um, so you're not under any pressure to understand or to kind of come to conclusions about the material or you kind of make any judgments about it. So you can just sort of put things down, you know, in, in a way that does feel very freeing to me. You know, it's a really, it's a really complicated question about like what's, what's revealed and, and, and what's kept. And I know it's something that a lot of writers struggle with and a lot of writers approach differently and I think everybody's got their own bits and pieces that their own particular like topics and areas that are unapproachable or taboo for them and they're different for everyone and sometimes they're really kind of weird and surprising which is a strange one but none of the stuff I write about has ever felt particularly private I don't want to say private I think there's this sort of one of the kind of things I push back against a little bit is this idea that kind of writing about the self is somehow brave, um, especially if you're writing about difficult things, because I think there's a kind of um, subtext to that, which is I couldn't possibly tell people about this because it's shameful. So like, well done you for talking about this, like, fucking awful thing that you did kind of like a kind of like a like a bless your heart kind of feeling like yeah well well done you well done you for Mm. like you know showing me just how dirty your undies are um (laughs) you know you know that kind of thing um and I've always felt like the I mean especially when especially when I started with small acts I think one of the things that as I started writing one of the things that I had in my mind was that one of the reasons that I was sick for so long before realizing exactly what it was that beset me as it were was that none of none of the cultural knowledge that I had about anorexia or eating disorders none of the stories I'd ever been told or seen on tv or watched or read or whatever had anything to do with my experience it just they just didn't map at all so it was so easily able to say well it's not like that so that's not me that's not like that's not what's happening to me it's it doesn't look like that it doesn't feel like that um that's not what's going on in my brain it's different um when the truth of the matter is that like my experience was far more typical than I knew it's just that all of those narratives and all of those depictions were wrong um, because they were written by outsiders, as it were. So I really had this conviction that I needed to 
write the book that someone like me <laughs> earlier could have read and been like, oh, this is a bit familiar. <laughs> or, or like just that, that had the information in it that I hadn't had. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, which, which sounds like a bit of a trite thing to say, but and it's a kind of roundabout way of answering the question, but I've always felt like it was an important thing to do. So I've, so I never kind of second guessed the question of, you know, what is revealed and or what is kept private. You know, all all of all all writing kind of performs itself in in one way or another. So it it is sort of, you know, it's a character. You can't put all of yourself into a thing. It's just not possible the same way you can't tell all of a story. Hmm. So I had all these very complicated ideas about it and kind of various ways of approaching the question. Um, <laughs> but it's, I feel like even in the question itself, there's a suggestion that it's some kind of um, uh, very neat, even mercenary process where you, you, you know, the, you understand and can see yourself clearly the breadth of what you could say. And then mm -hmm. you go around and cherry pick it and I don't know, my experience is, is not that at all. I mean, you said earlier that we don't choose our subject matter and, and that just kind of like was a flash of light for me. So I'm like, yeah, there are these, these things that, that want to be written. Yeah. And I think, I think too, when you look at writers who've been writing, you know, old, old writers um, with, you know, big herbs. <laughs> Sorry. I love mispronouncing that word because it's so much fun, <laughs> you know, with, 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 you know, dozens of dozens of books. Um, all of them have kind of recurring obsessions and themes um, because that's what we're like as people. There are these, you know, these things that obsess us and, you know, they're the things that we can't help but make our books about, mm -hmm. you know, make, that plays out in different ways and you kind of explore it from different angles and with different approaches. But you know, there's always a commonality there and I'm fascinated by that. Mm -hmm. With regards to the theme as well, I don't want to leave, I don't want to uh, have had this conversation with you and not have approached the theme of place mm. because that is there in, it's, it is there in small acts, it's definitely there in domestic interior and yeah. perhaps even more so in the world as whole. It's always been from when I've first started engaging with poetry in Australia it's felt like one of the most um, omnipresent and also uncomfortable yeah. aspects of writing and and I appreciate that what the way that you write about place so much because I don't know I feel like you see the suburbs in in a way that I, I thought only I saw them you know <laughs> just there's such weird places and you expose that weirdness so effectively but also to just this ability to, through that kind of focus, I guess, like resist, maybe it isn't even a resistance, but just not engage with any kind of, um, you know, like soft focus, this is what it is to live in Sydney or, you know, something like that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah I mean, place, 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 you know, is, a, is, a, is, is really huge for me and I think... I think that came originally from not feeling comfortable um, in the place that I grew up in, which I know is like a super common experience. I was reading an, um, one of James Bradley's essays 
I think it's a couple of years old now, but it's called an ocean and instance, an, an ocean and instant, um, and it's on SRB, and it's a it's an essay about climate and about grief and and the death of a father. But as part of it, like Bradley is going back to Adelaide, where his father still lives and is is dying. And I'd, I'd kind of completely forgotten that part of it when I first read the essay, but rereading it, there was this line in there about how, um, <laughs> you know, everybody has feelings. <laughs> <laughs> You know, everyone has complex feelings about the place in which they grew up. Right, right. All the more so, all the more so if you're a person who has then left that place in the way that Bradley has. You know, he lives in Sydney now, and I was like, God, that's such an elegant way of putting it. Um, <laughs> you know, we all have a complicated relationship to the place in which we grew up because it does sort of shape our our sense of what the world is like and how it works and and what's normal and what's ordinary and all of those things. You know, and I did grow up in a very suburban suburb, um, <laughs> you know, in the kind of southwest of Sydney and it always felt particularly, particularly suburby to me because it was in one of Sydney's many public public transport black holes. So it's just very difficult to get anywhere until you're old enough to drive. Um, and then, you know, everybody's got a car because it's very difficult to get anywhere. You know, it's, it's a physically very beautiful place. But it's a place that, I mean, growing up, I was always like, oh, this is a place that is not very tolerant of difference. And I felt my difference keenly. And I was like, oh, well, I just don't belong here. I don't fit here. Um, what is it about, you know, and I, it wasn't a kind of question of what is it about this place that makes me not fit. It, it, I always felt very different and unusual and freakish. And I thought it was because of the place. You know, my sort of childhood teenage narrative was it's like, I don't fit in this place. It's too white bread it's too suburban it's too boring it's too intolerant it's too this it's too that it's too that and you know and and then I moved to the like creative inner west um expecting to to then be in a place where I belonged and still felt exactly the same um <laughs> and then I found out I was autistic um <laughs> and I was like Oh, you know why you feel so different? Because you are. Um, <laughs> so, you know, which is kind of the flippant answer for all of that. But I also had this fascination about the fact that, you know, I live in Newtown. I still live in Newtown. It's the place that I moved out to. And I love it here for all kinds of reasons. Like I have a community here. Um, I have history here now. It's physically like very beautiful in a very different way from, from men I you can walk everywhere, which, and, you know, walking is a thing I really love to do, like every writer ever. Um, you know, but the two places are so different geographically, physically, culturally. Um, you know, the houses are different. The gardens are different. The, like, the, you know, just the lifestyle is different. You know, how close people live to each other is is different and, and yet these pla these two places are still both called suburbs um, mm. <laughs> and that like the kind of cognitive dissonance of that was something that really fascinated me um, my kind of PhD was about suburbs and poetry and I think a lot of that thinking was kind of bubbling away in the background when I started writing The World Was Whole which I originally thought of as a book about home and the idea of home and this idea of not belonging um, and what that means which then morphed into what I thought was a book about the ordinary, the domestic, the everyday, the routine, the ritual, because these things all seem to be tied up 
in the idea of home. And it wasn't until I was writing what it's not the final essay in the book, but it's the last essay that I wrote, which was um, the piece about China, about being in Shanghai. And I thought that was going to be an essay about different uses of public space and different kinds of homes. And it turned out like that piece is about grief and about a grieving for, you know, the younger self that I was constantly being reminded of as I walked around Shanghai, like that self who like desperately wanted to go to this place um, and never got there. And then it was this sudden realisation that was like, oh, this whole book is about grief, mm. you know, and it, um, which is, you know, one of, the, one of the things I love most about writing is the way that you very often don't actually know what it is you're writing about until you're done. <laughs> <laughs> well, that can be scary because sometimes you figure that out like the night before you're going to launch your book. Oh, yeah, it's terrifying, <laughs> um, you know, and you know, there, there are all those stupid analogies about like, it's like leaping off a cliff into the unknown, um, <laughs> you know, and, it, and that's such a fucking trite thing to say. But, but I always feel like a, a kind of combined terror and exhilaration in that when you're, when you're working on a piece and you know that it's working, but you don't quite know where it's going to end up yet. You're just, you're just bashing the ideas together, but, but there's some kind of spark happening. Um, it's thrilling, but it's also it's also shit scary. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I heard you use that phrase in a, in another podcast interview that you did recently, bashing ideas together, and it really really helped me understand not only your own work, but like what yeah, what's exciting about all writing that you know, like I recently read um, Rebecca Solnit's mm. uh, recollections of my disappearance yeah yes and I was really enjoying it and not putting it down and my partner was like oh what's it you know what's it about and you just kind yeah. of draw a blank because it's like mm. yeah it's, mm, it's this and it's this and it's this yeah. and it's this you mm. also mentioned um in an interview from oh, oh quite a few years back that Uh-oh. um Joan Didion's year of magical thinking was, mm. was a, a bit of a spark for small acts and I wanted to ask you in relation to that, and I know this is going to the like poetry prose dichotomy, which we're mm-hmm. not entirely, we're saying is not, you know, all that useful, but are there any poets who you feel linked in with when, when you're writing at all, you know, poetry or prose, like mm, at the moment? It's a really interesting question. Um, it's funny. I was, I was just thinking about that phrase, banging ideas together and how that feels like a really kind of poetic impulse to right to just kind of you know let things sit side by side and see what happens mm. um you know I read a lot of poetry obviously and 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 I love it I feel like I haven't read much of it this year though for some like for some strange reason it's sort of fallen fallen off my radar a little bit which is which is a real shame one of the things I have always enjoyed most about poets <laughs> which is a weird sentence um I feel like I feel like I have a really strong community of poets um and women poets in particular around me and you know we have really great conversations that are like supremely nerdy conversations but very you know very much about ideas and form and problems in your work and you know have you read or you should 
you know, this might help and this book might help and can I, you know, I'll lend you this and here's a link, you know, th- those sorts of um, kind of brain work conversations. You know, so, so a lot of the poetry I, I feel keyed into kind of happens in that way, you know, and, and there are people like Kate Middleton, um, Liz Allen, Lindsay Tuggle, um, they're all kind of, you know, local to me and just, you know, genuinely wonderful people. Um, yeah, but I, I really, I've been reading a lot. Uh, you know what I read most? I read most mostly novels. Mm. Um, like, I really love fiction and I always have. And I would love nothing more than to be able to write it, but I just can't. <laughs> like, cause and effect bamboozles me. Um, <laughs> bamboozle me. Structure. What the fuck is structure? <laughs> like, <laughs> it's another. It's another planet. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I, I kind of, I tell this story a lot that like, all through all through my schooling high school in particular, I have these really solid memories of, you know, I was, I was always very good at English, but I thought I was a terrible writer um, and, and especially a terrible creative writer because, you know, you do your creative writing subjects. Um, I just thought I was really bad at it. And it wasn't until years later that I realised it was because all we were ever asked to write at school were short stories my short stories suck. It's one of they the hardest do. forms <laughs> like, as well. Like it's so hard to write a good short so story. Yeah, yeah. But, but, you know, it's just like, oh, no wonder I thought I was crap. Mm. <laughs> it's oh, like wow. a basketballer thinking they're bad at sport because they've been asked to play hockey. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly it. Um, you mentioned Kate in there and I that reminded me, I, I before I let you go, I wanted to share this with you that, I, I listened to the States of Poetry recorded reading where you and Kate and a few others read and I heard. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was from a few years ago and I heard you read mm-hmm. Crisis Poem from uh, Domestic Interior and mm-hmm. I, I was so excited by it that I, I got on in the email and I was like writing to you being like, I loved Crisis Poem, it's amazing. And then I got this reply back from Kate Middleton being like, that was my friend Fiona. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Okay. Oh, I'm going to slink back into the corner now. <laughs> <laughs> she was very nice about it. Um, yeah, she's, she's a super good egg. Yeah. Um, she would have found that. She would have found that very amusing. Don't worry. <laughs> Just Alice's inv- adventures in poetry. Um, yeah. Well, I that guess was I, a poem I, I wrote for my brother after his yeah. 40th birthday. Oh, after his 40th birthday, because I remember you said oh, no. that. He wouldn't have been 40. He's only just 40 now. He must have been like in his mid-30s or something right. like that. But Yeah. Mm, he was, he but wasn't entirely happy about it. Oh, I don't know. I don't think he, I don't think he, um, I don't think he noticed. <laughs> oh, right. Okay. Oh, right. Yeah. Uh, my <laughs> sister, on the other hand, got really upset about a poem that I wrote before that, um, one of the poems in Knuckled. Um and that was kind of a really important lesson. Because um, <laughs> I think, I think um, one of the things that happens very easily when you're a poet, and an emerging poet in particular, is there's such a strange economy of publishing where, you know, you put things out in the world and um, you don't really hear much. And you kind of get a sense that people are reading it, but it's mostly other poets. So it doesn't feel like a public act when, of course, publishing is 
public. And so like I put that first collection together without really thinking about any of that and therefore made some highly questionable ethical decisions. <laughs> you know, and I, and I feel like those sorts of questions are things that you have to navigate afresh with every project and with every book and that every writer approaches differently. And my approach seems to be um, make mistakes and learn from them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's it's something that I've only, I mean, we could do a whole next hour on this, but yeah, mm-hmm. something I've only just started thinking about, like with poems that I've been writing recently that use people's full names and, you know, reference other poets without, you know, in context that might not be entirely flattering, things like that. And I'm like, well, mm-hmm. if this is ever going to become if anyone ever says yes to this, I'm going to have to have some weird and awkward email exchanges. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and I think, I think that's the approach and it's, and it's the advice I give all the time when people, when people ask me is that the ethical questions are editing questions rather than writing questions, right? Like you yeah. can't, you can't have them in your brain while you're doing the writing or you'll tie yourself up in knots and, and just never get anything done or you'll censor yourself before you even start. So you know, you, you, I feel like you write first and then you do the bit where you're like, okay, you know, what are the ethics of this? Is this a problem? If it's a problem, how do I, how do I fix it? Mm. Mm. Yeah. At that point, not, not, don't crush not your, a, not yeah. before, not before you've got words down on a page or you'll go mad. Yeah. I mean, you sure. might go mad anyway, but you know, after the fact is better. Yeah. It's highly likely. <laughs> Uh, well, it's been such a pleasure to talk to you. I could, I really wish that I would, I would love to be part of those chats where you're sharing links and things. Maybe one day I'll get up to Sydney. We can have a drink together, but um, uh, thank you. And thank you for having me. It's it's so lovely to put a face to a name and have a chat and all of those things. Yeah. Does, do you have any, any um, nice things awaiting you in your afternoon or just work? Um, I have to teach. Which is, which, you know, is kind of, is one of those things. Um, I don't, you know, I, I often quite, I, oft, I, I do enjoy it mostly. I get very anxious about it. I don't think it's good for my health. And I have a really bad habit of saying yes to too much of it. Um, and then getting to this point in semester and being like, I feel like I haven't written anything for like weeks and I'm, I'm a writer, not a teacher. Um, but this is a, perennial problem for everybody you know I know Mm. I'm not alone in that Mm. and after that I'm going to put more stuff in boxes because I'm moving house (laughs) so you can probably see the empty shelves behind me I was wondering so to Newtown again yeah yeah just a different part of Newtown (laughs) amazing (laughs) love it